to season three episode 15 of history's greatest idiots the show where we look back through all of human history and give you examples of staggering and unbelievable human stupidity so that you can learn lessons from them and never repeat those mistakes again but who are we kidding we're humans we like making mistakes mistakes are fun and they provide us with fodder for our amazing content so thank you so much idiots joining me as ever <laughs> is my amazing co-host derek derek how are you doing, my man? How's stuff over in Arizona? I'm doing pretty good. Fashionably good. late, as always. You yeah, guys are welcome for that. Sorry, guys. <laughs> uh, things are good here. Uh, we finally got some rain. So, you know. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. I'm glad that that, like, apocalyptic level weather across the world has calmed down a little bit, to be honest. I'm yeah, still not going are... outside. No, no, it's still going to be hot as balls, isn't it? I mean, it hasn't stopped raining here this weekend, which I'm super happy about. I've had loads of relatives. Like when I, now, I'm British. The majority of the time we talk about the weather, it, it, it's, it is a cliche <laughs> that works, right? So I've been talking to a bunch of my relatives. I'm like, how are you doing? How's things back over here? And they're like, oh, yeah, so happy. You know, just wish the weather would cheer up. I'm like, no, I don't want it to. I want it to rain for fucking months. Because oh, yeah. you never know when we're going to get a summer like this again, where we're getting regular rainfall. It's crazy. So, yeah, yeah, I'm super happy about it. But I'm also glad that you guys have finally got a little bit of something in the reservoir so you can, I don't know, have a glass of water instead of, like, cherry. Hey, or I've never noticed that we've had any sort of shortage of water. They They make it, you know, super easy to feel like everything is okay and going to be okay. <laughs> yeah, And I appreciate that. Thanks. And we're still getting out of here because yeah, in like ten years it's gonna be thing. totally screwed. Yeah, it is. It's gonna be kind of crazy. If you go, if you go south of the Donna Dixie line, uh, in about twenty years' time, man, that is gonna be like, it's gonna be like Mad Max or something. Ooh. Yeah, dude, I don't want to be in that movie. <laughs> no, no, no. Even like the people who've got it relatively easy, are still living in a hell environment. So yeah, let's hope Arizona doesn't end up like that. But yeah, it, it's not looking good. So over here, bit of news from me, and this isn't an endorsement, although I might get in touch with them. And if they are listening, or if anyone working for the company is listening and wants to endorse us, I'm more than happy to do a very unique endorsement for you because I don't know if you'll have done this before. I've started taking Huel. Oh, that's good stuff. Yeah. So I was really surprised. I, because like... I don't, because of my condition, Crohn's disease, I don't absorb the nutrients I need to to, like, not go blind and not lose my hair and not die early and stuff like that. So I was like, right, I'm having all of this shit for breakfast. I'm having, like, gluten-free cereals. 
it tastes like fucking cardboard. They've just reduced the size of it. They've increased the price and they've changed the ingredients. So like it's it's even worse than ever. So I'm like extra cardboardy. Extra cardboardy and the nuts just fall off the crunchiness. So <laughs> fuck it. I'm not having it anymore. So I was like, right, I'm actually gonna have something healthy. So I looked into Huel and it's I mean, it ain't cheap because you have to buy it in bulk. But I got like the individual shakes that you can get in supermarkets early. And I was like, this is just like an old milkshake and I feel good. So, you know, perfect. And then I got it. And uh, yesterday was the first time I tried it as the scoop shake stuff. And uh, I just had it playing with water and uh, wasn't a massive fan because and then I looked into it and people like, oh, yeah, you have to have have to add your own stuff because it's like it's like drinking powder. And I was like, well, that makes sense. So I tried it with whole milk today and uh, significantly better. And I feel good for like the first half of the day as a result of this. And I was like, I can't believe this is working <laughs> it, it is packed with the nutrients have you tried the 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 huel black the heat up stuff that's what i've got oh no no the food no i haven't tried the food oh, yeah. stuff yet no i haven't tried I, the heat up food it's it's super good the is thai it? chili curry stuff Ooh. i just Ooh. kept eating that <laughs> it was great but you just got a big old bag yeah and like a, a lot of this is like because i made a when I changed my job recently, I was like, right, I'm going to take a little bit more time for me, focus on my health, because I'd really been putting in like 60, 70 hour weeks for my day job and it wasn't healthy. You know, you, you finish work and you, you feel like death and you're not eating properly. So I was like, right, I'm going to eat properly and do more healthy stuff. And Huel is the first stage in that. And so far it's it's good. I feel full and I'm, I feel better. And Huel, if you want to sponsor us. Yeah, look now, at that. Amen. Of a certain age, and also you've got a spokesperson potentially here who has a chronic incurable condition who is saying that your product works for someone who has digestive issues. So please get in touch with us. I would really love to kind of kind of get sponsored to talk about your human fuel. It is <laughs> quite tasty, actually. So anyway, um, away from all of that, I should probably mention that our patrons, Jesse... And, um, oh, I've, I've forgotten. The, oh, that's so bad. I've forgotten the name of our um, most recent Patreon. I'm just going to get I'm gonna go bright up. eyes. I just, uh, um, yeah, bright eyes, who normally joins us on these streams, actually. So I'm just going to go to our insights on the page now. I should absolutely remember who this is. Um, why doesn't it let me find? We're still getting used to this. Having, we're, having we're still kind of outside of our comfort zone with this so kimberly johnson thank you so yeah, much okay. kimberly johnson and obviously jesse christ our like og um patron thank you guys so much for your continued support i will be uploading some more stuff in the next day or so so that you can have access to original scripts behind the scenes stuff uh, a bunch of interesting pictures from our lives as we go around our life lives as professionals in the media industry and stuff like that but also um yeah, just general life stuff. You get to see my holiday pictures on there. Not that you really want to. What he's going to sign ah, up for that. He's yeah, got good cute. holiday pictures. A lot of dogs' pictures. Yeah. So, um, yeah, join uh, if you want to join our Patreon. Please go to Patreon.com/slash/History'sGreatestIdiots, and you can get a bunch of stuff behind the scenes stuff, a free gift when you sign up, and a bunch of interactive stuff as well. And um, yeah, scripts. And we will eventually expand as well. So as we get more people, you get more stuff. So go ahead. It starts at like 
three dollars i think is our lowest tier all the way up to like uh, i i'm on the page i should probably look at that i i really need to get more familiar with the the interface of this thing so yeah like three dollars five dollars and twenty dollars steven seagal tier is the highest level of <laughs> so please big, big old giant steven seagal but yes please one of you become steven seagal so that we can get some some money from that that idiot um but also if you want to follow us on social media please go to um at greatest idiots on twitter where we're currently live so you get to watch our live streams live instead of on YouTube or Twitch. You can also follow us on YouTube if you just search for History's Greatest Idiots. We're on there. All of our videos are there. I've now rearranged the page so that our live videos are top, which is so much easier. Thank you, YouTube, for finally adding that feature. Um, if you go to twitch.tv uh, twitch slash wildtheanger, we do our live streams on there. And we'll have to create an actual History's Greatest Idiots live stream section uh, on Twitch at some point. But I, I currently have 236 followers on Twitch, so it's like, I don't know how Twitch that. works, so I'll just leave that to you. I'll I'll handle that. No worries. I leave most and, of the stuff to you. I'm sorry about that. That's all right. I, I enjoy doing most of the stuff when I have time. It's like a, it's peaceful for me. It's like gardening is for my mother. You know, like she enjoys that shit, and I enjoy technology and tweaking and creating. It's it's fun to me. Also, we're on Instagram. If you go to at History's Greatest Idiots on Instagram, you can find us on there, where we will post highlights and crazy shit that we say during the streams. And um, Speaking of crazy shit that we say during the streams and Instagram, crazy shit. Uh, though they're not a Patreon mm -hmm. yet, uh, Niels on Insta hit us up on our last episode. Oh we yeah, were talking about foreign prisons and mentioned we are far too white for foreign prison, which can oh, yeah. come off a little bit. Mm, yeah, I, icky. I I shouldn't have phrased it like that. That's my fault, and I apologize for that. What I I kind of meant is essentially that me and Derek are, I think at this stage in our lives, it would be fair to say that we're a little bit uh, soft. soft and suburban. You know, like we would not cope well with foreign prisons, I think. I think that would be a real culture shock for us. Um, when I, That's what I meant by saying white. I shouldn't have done that. I apologize to anyone I offended. Niels in particular, I'm sorry if that upset you. Uh, it was just a word I reached for in the moment and it was completely wrong. What I meant is we're soft soft as fuck and we'd struggle in those prisons <laughs> but but hey that's the thing though that i think is great about you and i is that we are all about just being real and yeah. understanding and learning like absolutely trying to help everybody learn not to the point of the podcast is yeah <laughs> helping people learn and stuff so now that we've got that stuff out of the way derek tell us about your idiot for this episode i'm i'm super excited about this one oh because, yeah um in a way the captivating and peculiar journey of this guy it makes him sort of responsible for the very name of this show. No way. But it's not you. Okay, that's fine. It's a, a renowned American psychologist and a man of many eccentricities that was born on a sunny August day in 1866 in the quaint town of Vassalboro, Maine. And how Ooh, do I know nice. it was a sunny August day? I don't. It's artistic license. You're welcome. Yeah. Also, it's Maine, so if it's a sunny autumn day in Maine, that's quite romantic, I think. You can have that license. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, his name was Henry H. Goddard, and he knew in his bones that he was destined to be more than just a blip on the radar of history. But little did anybody know that the enigmatic figure would become a key player in the realms of psychology, 
and oh yeah, eugenics, that pesky oh. evil pseudoscience that always ends up making people suffer. Yeah, gross. Okay. Interesting person. Go on. Uh, as a young lad, Henry faced adversary, uh, adversity with uh, the bravery of a seasoned explorer. You can tell I've been bored and was working on my creative writing here. <laughs> yeah, this is working nicely. It's very, uh, painting quite the picture. Tragedy struck early when a bull gored his father on the family farm, leaving oh. it in ruins. Oh, shit. Yeah. Wow, that's, he... a, that's some Superman tragedy backstory right there. <laughs> and it filled him with determination. So he rolled up his sleeves and he decides he's going to be a farmhand and, and fill his father's role. But alas, fate had more surprises in store for him. And when his, his dad finally passed away, he was mm. just nine years old, not his dad, Henry, because that would be weird if he had a kid and was yeah, yeah, by a bull of... and had a farm. <laughs> that would At be nice. Yes. Um, anyway, Henry's got this unwavering determination to make something extraordinary of himself. So education becomes his escape from the suffering and sadness of the loss of his father in the family farm and his ticket to the realm of infinite possibilities. So he mm -hmm. ventures to Oak Grove Seminary where he develops this lifelong friendship with Rufus Jones, who was a man who um, went on to co-found the American Friends Service Committee. Okay. Who, and he later found himself traversing the hollowed halls of Haverford College, uh, where his thirst for knowledge grew insatiable by the day. Uh, mm. Adventure didn't end there. He escaped to sunny California as a young man, and landed a temporary teaching position at the University of Southern California, where he actually coached the very first USC football team. Oh, wow. So, man of many talents. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's captivated by the world of psychology while he's teaching, and sure. it's really captured his heart. He starts a mentorship under the esteemed um, Granville Stanley Hall at Clark University, and he's drawn into the mesmerizing world of child the child study movement. Right. Okay, that's interesting. At this point, he's armed with a doctorate in psychology, and he sets forth on this path um, into psychology that forever changes his life. Wow. The turning point comes when he assumes this role of uh, director of research at the Vineland Training School for the Feeble-Minded Boys and Girls in Vineland, New Jersey. Oh, uh, I, yeah, that's a horrible it's word. It's the 1800s. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it really well, is. Late, late 1800s, early 1900s. I'm not doing really good with my dates and times and facts because I was like super creative writing this last week and right. um, it spilled over into what I was doing. Oh, here. that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> we like creative writing. It's totally okay. Uh, baby and the monkey. I think maybe Toastazoid is correct, but we'll see. <clears throat> Welcome, Toastazoid, by the way. Good to see you, buddy. Oh, this is the guy who did the experiment with the baby and the monkey. Oh, um, where this is going. So Henry's doing uh, the school for the boys and girls in New Jersey, and he, he heads across the Atlantic to Europe in 1908, where he stumbles upon a revolutionary intelligent test devised by Alfred Bennett, and Theodore Simon. Okay. <laughs> um, 
he's determined to share this newfound treasure with the world and he translates the test into English and introduces it back at the Vineland school. Um, little did he know the stim- that simple act would transform the landscape of intelligence testing across the United States. And that test would kind of become the Holy grail for assessing mental capacities. Grief. Okay. Which is where we get some really neat words and the name of this show. So uh. here we go. Henry's mind was this ecosystem of innovative ideas that included the creation of a classification system that included labels like moron and imbecile and oh, idiot. Hmm. There it is for it uh, is. individuals. Thanks so much, mister. <laughs> <laughs> he created these, these labels and, and titles for individuals with varying degrees of intellectual impairment. Right. So um, different degrees of uh, mental slowness, mm-hmm. according to his own tests but not necessarily science science right i'm beginning to get a vibe of the guy who was the um the doctor in the prison who wasn't really a doctor but got to run all of these experiments on people and went kind of crazy kind of feels like this where we've got someone else who's probably even though he's got a doctor it's probably kind of not focused on the actual what he should be doing and just sort of doing whatever he feels like at this stage. I think they let people um, in this, like the field of like studying and um, like, I can't even think of the word that I'm looking for. Like who's the idiot now? Um, <laughs> <laughs> what's the like psychology? Well, when they're studying and they're, they're learning, they oh, like kind of give them, yeah, they give them free reign to kind of, push boundaries and learn stuff. And I think that's true in the eight, the 1800s, 1900s, they let them go too far way too oh, yeah. often. They were just yeah. kind of like, yeah, do whatever. Go yeah. for it. They're, they're, <laughs> they're, they're not important to society. Do what you want. Exactly. <laughs> so this guy decided to do what he wanted and what he wanted to do was his magnum opus, which was the Kaliak family, which was a, a study of the heredity of feeble-mindedness that was published in 1912. Right. Um, this, this study left the world both astonished and baffled, and he traced the lineage of a young girl named Emma Wolverton, a Vineland training school attendee, back to the Revolutionary War soldier named Martin... Um, I don't even know if I'm saying this right. It's K-A-L-L-I-K-A-K. That's a lot of K's and I's Ka- and L's. Kaliak. Kali- Kaliak. We'll go with that. That's Kaliak. Kaliope. I don't know. It, so- it sounds about right. Anyway, so he found um, what he found in this study was fascinating and alarming that mm. one branch was deemed wholesome, while the other branch was deemed a race of defective degenerates due to an affair with a feeble minded woman. Oh. And th- those results. Um, led to some controversy. Well, yeah. Oh, <laughs> so some, some things started coming out about his research methods and people started having questions. And then his conclusions that he had reached started being doubted a little bit. Right, okay. That didn't stop his influence from soaring. And mm. so he starts embracing 
what everybody's embracing at the time is the idea that eugenics is a really good thing and maybe selective breeding and intelligence testing combined with that uh, for the immigrants that are coming through Ellis Island in 1913, he wow. thought maybe that would help things. It's crazy. Um, <laughs> eugenics, when you, when you hear it like that today, 2023 it sounds completely insane and horrifying but for some reason at the time people because i guess psychology was a relatively new field of you know study less than 100 years old i guess they were a bit like oh this is the next evolution nobody went sounds a lot like discrimination but yeah well scary stuff. i still think it's crazy that there's people today that are in positions of leadership in government that say yeah. shit that borders on what Eugenics. these people are saying and yeah it's like did you listen to the words you just said, sir? <laughs> Do you are you aware of history? You're aware of how ridiculously cyclical and terrifying this sounds to really bad things that happened nearly a hundred years ago now. Wow. Yes. Oh, yeah. Crazy. Anyway, okay, please back continue. to Henry. Uh, his passion for eugenics and intelligence testing reached new heights during World War One when he started collaborating with the psychologist Robert Yerkes to develop mental intelligence tests for US Army recruits. Okay. The results that he got there were pretty eye-opening mm. and then were later met with skepticism and they questioned the accuracy of his assessments because they were full of shit. Anyway, in later <laughs> years, uh, he he had his unshakable spirit that led him to challenge some of his earlier beliefs. So uh, he got better. Okay. Uh, doubts kind of clouded his once unwavering faith in the classification system. And he began to reconsider his dangerous uh, assessments of the feeble mindedness. He even suggested that they should be trained for jobs that were suited for their abilities and allowed to live fulfilling lives. Holy shit. Uh, so <laughs> they're allowed to do things as opposed to now let's not restrict them. They're allowed to do things that suit them. Who decides what suits them? He's we, moving we in the do? right direction though. Mm, yeah. Like, he wanted to just put him away. Basically. Yeah. Now he's like, hey, you know what? We should just let him do things. Yeah. Live it's lives. A, it, it reminds me a little bit, and this is a terrible comparison, but what he's suggesting is kind of what happens at the end of um, Shaun of the Dead, where the zombies are repurposed. Uh, and yeah. chained up so that they can put supermarket shopping trolleys away mm. and stuff like that and do menial tasks. Is it's is, is kind of oh. what he's suggesting here, Shit. essentially. I was looking at this totally wrong. <laughs> I was <laughs> I was thinking, holy shit, he came around. He's thinking, look, they have purpose. I mm, I just guess I just want to have purpose so bad I thought <laughs> I want to do something suitable. <laughs> <laughs> I want a fulfilling life. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so yeah. Henry's journey uh, has controversies and detractors, and he has support from colleagues, and he defends his life or his work through most of his life, even though most of his ideas were increasingly dismissed in the scientific community. His work did come under fire, and the, the scientific merit of his early research is kind of largely thrown out. Right. But as the sun began to set on his extraordinary life that spanned across the continents and led to a lot of really bad things as far as intelligence testing went and mm. putting people away and classifying people and saying um, racially who's allowed to do what in the U.S. military. 
based on mental assessments um, and that hereditary mentalness, uh, mental feeble mindedness could be hereditary. Horrible phrase. Yeah. What is that even mean? (laughs) I know the word feeble is such an odd word as well, because like it was used obviously to describe people that were getting older and weren't physically capable of working in, the fields for their masters anymore so you know we're talking like medieval times like oh this this like surf is now feeble because they're 50 am i a feeble millennial well i think i think i'm feeble (laughs) because of crohn's disease but you know like it's such a weird thing because it means like feeble implies a certain physical limitation so to apply it to a mental structure Uh, it's like it's so weird because intelligence is completely fluid and when people are allowed to apply their kind of abilities and their mental acuity to the right thing they can be really really useful and impactful and worthwhile but they have to choose that you can't dictate that for them that's crazy yes well he 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 stopped being able to dictate things to to people and he relocated to santa barbara california where he spent his final days reflecting on his turbulent career. And on June 16th, 1957, he uh, passed away. And that that's Nothing. pretty much, you know, the life of Henry H. Goddard, who remains a captivating figure in mm. the world of psychology, who had some quirky misadventures, <laughs> I guess is a, a way to say quirky. it. Eugenics. Uh, yeah, but... W- he, he did bring about some things that were valid, mm, mm. but not many. Yeah, I think it's one of those situations where people will look back on like the successes of these awful human beings and say, well, you know, they brought about this. But actually, you kind of wonder, had we left a little bit longer, maybe someone with a stronger moral compass or with more scruples might have made that discovery without fucking damaging loads of people around them and and not even connected to them it's it's such a weird thing having to rate this because what we're talking really is about like kind of continued impact and influence on on the way people are assessed in society and there's like a legacy to the way people are assessed for everything that is rooted in early psychology and tests and things like that and i'm sure this guy has a big part of it i don't know if he has a massive influence on the way things hopefully he's been completely discredited and we now have um kind of acceptable ways of doing assessments but you never know because a lot of assessments are still incredibly biased towards specific um like groups in society and against them as well so I think for kind of prolonged impact, this guy, and kind of having to go along the lines of like an 83. Okay. Yeah. That's higher than I was thinking. Yeah, I just, (laughs) (laughs) I think, and also a lot of it is down to the fact that he was, people were questioning his legitimacy back then, which shows you how bad things probably were, but nobody stopped the spread of the influence. No, and they let him wander around and test on kids yeah, for exactly. sake <laughs> do whatever he wanted with yeah. feeble-minded people oh it's okay because they're feeble-minded therefore he can do whatever he wants like that's a crazy 
thing in itself. Like he's allowed access to these people because he's assessed them a certain way. Um, I like the irony of this guy being on a podcast called World's Greatest Idiots when idiot was a term he used for mentally ill people. It's it's yeah, it's it's so weird because that's not really how I see the word idiot. The word idiot is someone who makes a series of significant mistakes and either doesn't learn from them or influences the world around them as a result. Um, but, you know... I like the <laughs> irony too, Toast. I, I, it's, it's kind of amazing because what you've got here is a guy who is in a, an incredibly powerful and privileged position and is doing all of the wrong things with that influence and power but is probably being held up in certain circles as hugely important and influential. But actually... Surely the bad outweighs the good because someone else could have done the good. He just happened to include a load of the bad in there because he could. I think because he was filling a position mm -hmm. that somebody else that maybe would have been better could have filled too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah I was just thinking that about business in general. Like when some of these people that don't know what they're doing are running businesses and just yeah. are allowed to keep doing it. Not mentioning any musks. I mean, names. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> there are some people out there that are. And it also, we have to be very careful. And this is something that's been like a real problem in the Western world for the last like 250 years. When we describe people as geniuses, it's a really dangerous thing to do because I've, I think I've talked about this before. When you're a genius, you're generally only really, really good at one thing. That's the typical definition of genius, right? We seem to some, for some reason, see the word genius as meaning that this person can do everything amazingly well and that they are without flaw or fault. But actually, it just means that they're good at one thing. In fact, in children, the word genius generally means when you see you say, oh, this kid is a child genius, it usually means they've got a really good memory and they're actually able to memorize things like patterns and like schema and stuff and actually bring it out whenever they need to. Like, oh, this kid can memorize pi to a thousand decibels. Well, yeah, because he's remembered it all because their brains are just tiny accurate computers at that point they haven't been smashed around in football games or black battered <laughs> with booze and drugs or whatever else you know so that's the word genius is is thrown around and i think when people are in like elite positions it's actually important that they are questioned and peer-reviewed and processed and because otherwise they get away with shit like eugenics which yeah. is really dangerous oh yeah absolutely yeah well, I appreciate your score. So. No, I, I think it's important that we recognize the damage that people like that have done in this world. And he certainly sounds like he's contributed massively to that. So, yeah, I'm happy for 83. Speaking of unchecked um, influence and power and the damage it can do when you are not held to account. We've covered this actually a lot recently. We talked about Nick Leeson because he was seen as like a really incredible trading genius because he got like three or four gambling approaches right they were just like oh we'll leave him to do his thing sure enough he loses two billion dollars in a day as a result of having nothing around him to to like stop him from doing that we're now gonna yeah, move on no babysitters yeah they need they they need what the ancient romans had which was when they came back from their successful campaigns and they were driven through the streets of rome into the the kind of the inner sanctum of rome and they were driven by taxi drivers who I think they're called Augers, Uyghurs, or something. I can't remember what the official, how you pronounce it. it. starts with like an A. But these people were there to drive them through the city. 
uh, as they showed off their spoils of war and their slaves and all the people they captured and they're waving at people and people are cheering them on and throwing stuff at them. And the taxi driver's job was not only to drive the chariot taxi, but also to whisper in their ear, you're just a man. You're just, just a, man. a man. You're just a man. You're just yeah. stop getting a fucking huge head. You know? I have one of those, but mine's a dick. He's like, you suck. <laughs> yeah. They didn't have any internal voice. Mine goes, you're not oh. good enough. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you're not as good as you think you are. So there's was a real guy? This is a real this is a real job that people had. They would drive the taxis and go, shut the fuck up. You're nothing special. You I'm going to try so, that at work. I'm going to just walk around yeah. my CEO behind him. You're just, You're a, just man. a man. You're just a man. Uh, <laughs> to keep them on the ground, like this is because they started to think they were gods. It didn't work. Well, you think because, I'll last? Uh, probably about 48 hours. That doesn't exist in the <laughs> modern world, does it? <laughs> Speaking of CEOs who go about unchecked, I'd like to talk to you about my next guy. Oh, a Toasterzoid here, or just bodyguards that murder them whenever they get bored. I mean, yeah, that's that was Rome too. <laughs> just like this guy's getting a bit too big maybe we need to stab him 30 times yeah this is a pretty effective model let's, let's say it that way um so i'd like to introduce you to my idiot now one of the worst officially like number three or four depending on what article you read worst ceo of all time uh, this person didn't want to go too high because there's some <laughs> right idiots out there but this guy was a kind of an interesting case because he kind of didn't really ever do anything big right he just okay. got he just like church kind of as ceo he was just like moving through his career doing this doing this doing this and then off a cliff okay and that's I feel basically like for this guy <laughs> i think we've all worked for this guy so i'd like to introduce you to bernard bernie ebbers the corporate shopaholic so Bernard John Ebers was born in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, the second of five children uh, of Kathleen and John Ebers, a traveling salesman. The family were devout Christians. It doesn't say what kind of specific denomination they were, but devout nonetheless. Yes. Um, when Ebers was young, the family moved to California and later lived for a while on uh, a mission post on a Navajo national uh, Navajo nation Indian reservation in New Mexico before moving back to Canada when Evers was a teenager. So they were sent on a mission at a certain okay. point in their lives, which leave the Navajo alone. I think they've been through enough. Yeah. God, that, that poor group of natives. Yeah. They, they have been exploited for a long time. Don't necessarily go on a mission there. Just let them live their lives. Um, after high school, Ebers briefly attended the University of Alberta and Calvin College before enrolling at the uh, Mississippi College, at uh, Mississippi College, sorry, on a basketball scholarship. The big dude, this guy is like six foot five, something quite a chunky fella. Okay, so you, you'd want to do what he said because he's quite. <laughs> um, but uh, between schools, he worked as a milkman and a bouncer. When was this? Same time. Again? So this is uh so he was born I didn't actually didn't get down the name when he was born 60s. Okay. Well yeah cuz his dad was a traveling salesman and he worked as a milkman and a bouncer. Okay. Milkman and a bouncer at the same these are, time. These are all such awesome jobs so far. I know. <laughs> but can you imagine like because like the crossover between working as a bouncer and a milkman that's kind of like you end one shift and go straight into the other, right? Because you're like you're a bouncer, you're working till like maybe three, four in the morning, clearing up the bar, 
making like bouncing someone out, throwing them out of the door, maybe breaking up a fight, whatever. And then you literally finish that job, change into a like a white coat and a hat and stuff, and you're on the you're on the fucking milk float driving around. So it almost seems perfect though, unless you're does. still a little pissed off from the night before and start smacking people with milk bottles. <laughs> well, I was going to say, imagine if you bounced someone the night before, threw them out. And then, like, they get bailed out. They're on their way home, and he drives past them on the fucking milk float. And they're like, hang on a minute. You fucking bounced me out the... <laughs> that would suck. <laughs> it's a battle with milk flying everywhere straight oh, out first thing in the morning. So, yeah, that's that's kind of... That's an interesting shift. He's essentially a, a vampire um, <laughs> into the early mornings as well. Um, however, an injury in his um, senior year prevented him from playing his final year, and he was instead signed to coaching the uh, junior varsity team. So he, he still kept himself involved, which I think like when you learn kind of that kind of responsibility and leadership at a young age, that's stands you in good stead, I think for a, a career after that. And it's good that they were able to find something for him to do after his career ended. So that's the, good. Yeah. And, well, and it's a good thing, I think to, to move into coaching. I think it's a good thing for former players to coach. Oh yeah, for sure. Because that experience is invaluable. You'll stop people from making the same the same mistakes you do, and also it prolongs your your love of the sport in a very different way. It gives you a different asset. So I just wish there were more coaching positions for people who uh, their career ended is ended prematurely as a result of injury or whatever it might be. Just don't do what David Icke did, did if you have to like stop being a professional athlete and just say that you're the son of God or whatever. <laughs> Um, in 1967, he received a bachelor's degree in physical education with an academic minor in secondary education from Mississippi College. Ebers, um, as soon as he left college, began his career by opening, sorry, by operating a chain of hotels in Mississippi, which that's not a bad start. You know? Yeah. 60s as well. Like, I guess real estate would have been super cheap. I feel like the opportunities for people when they left college right the way up until like the mid 90s were so much easier to get into than they are like from like 97 onwards it's almost like there was this dude that had this economic plan Mm. that messed everything up but yeah it's almost like you can tie it back to a specific point in time yeah one person so Um, there's this it's itching at my brain i feel like i this this sounds so familiar ebers It, pro- I mean, it probably will do. It, it, like <laughs> When I get to the major shit, it will certainly start to sound familiar. Um, in 1983, in a coffee shop in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, he and three other investors formed Long Distance Discount Services, Inc. And in 1985, he was named the CEO. The company acquired over 60 telecommunications firms, and in 1995, it changed its name to WorldCom. So okay, so okay. over a period of ten years, they bought sixty other telecom companies, which six a year for ten years. It seems like a dumb idea. It seems like they're racking up a lot of debt, right? Yeah, you yeah. buy someone. Then you think about like Disney. Okay, they bought Marvel for four billion dollars. They bought um, Lucasfilm for four billion dollars. I guarantee they've earned like 10 times back from both of those deals now, probably like 20 times for Marvel. So that <laughs> that investment has returned immediately. They then, many years later, go out and spend like, what was it, 170, what was it, 70 or 170 billion dollars on Fox? Oh. And 
buy up all of that property, the Simpsons and all of the Marvel films that had were on that franchise and all of that shit. That's now Disney. So yeah, kind of crazy. But I think there's a lot of companies, and I'm thinking that this is one of those that buy stuff up to try to look good and have yep. no idea what the fuck they're doing. Yeah, just just buy, 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 and we'll we'll grow that way. Like it kind of reminds me a little bit of the Mongol way of conquering people, where like if you come onto our side, we'll take you over. We won't bother like fucking with the way you do stuff. Just make sure you pay a little bit to us and say that we're your overlords. That's all we want. If you don't do that, we'll chop all your fucking heads off, basically. So exactly, it's the Mongol way of taking <laughs> over businesses. Um, so the company acquired sixty telecommunications uh, over the course of ten years. In nineteen ninety six, Willcom acquired MFS Communications, originally Metropolitan Fiber Systems, and in September nineteen ninety eight, it acquired MCI Communications. In July two thousand. It abandoned its planned $115 billion acquisition of Sprint Corporation after U.S. and European Union antitrust regulators raised objections. Quite literally, join or die. Yeah, so um, I want to put this um, $115 billion um, fee in 2000 into perspective obviously here comes the adjusted for inflation that's 204 <laughs> billion dollars in today's money as oh, my kind of buyout this might actually sound like a lot but it's actually on trend with what was happening at the time because the largest ever acquisition was uh until like last year was the 1999 takeover of manisman by Vodafone Air Te- AirTouch PLC for $183 billion, which, when you adjust for inflation from 1999, is $330.5 billion today. It's just That's staggering. so much so money. That's <laughs> like someone's GDP right there. Like That yeah. is crazy money. This is like around the same time as... Gerald Levin was doing mm-hmm. his takeover of AOL and AOL and, Fox, uh, AOL um, Time Warner. Yeah. yeah. MCI right. Worldcom was happening too. Yep. You got mm. Worldcom. Also, something called Enron. Don't know if you oh, remember yeah. those guys. Oh, Enron was around about this time. Just a bunch so, of knuckleheads running around. <laughs> yeah. Also, if anyone remembers stock market history and kind of financial services and financial crises and stuff, the years 99, 2000 are not a particularly good year to be doing business at that point in time. That's more than GDP of most African countries. I think some, I think uh, if you were to compare it to places like Nigeria and South Africa and stuff like it, that's that's a drop in the ocean. But yeah, certainly some really small African countries and some like kind of smaller Asian countries, $330 billion is a lot of money. That's like approaching Nepal kind of levels of money right there um silly so, amount it's crazy money so by this point in his life ebbers had racked up the following awards and accolades mississippi business hall of fame 1995 member of wired 25 that's november 98 25 most powerful people in networking by network world in january 1999 uh time digital 50 1999 honorary doctor of law uh, Mississippi College in 92, and honorary doctor um, from Taugaloo College in 1998. I have never heard of that place, 
but that is an interesting name. Um, so, <laughs> but all of this like unchecked rampant spending is kind of going to come back to bite him in his like Mississippi Business Hall of Fame ass right now. <laughs> so, between September 2000 and April 2002, the board of directors of WorldCom authorized several loans and loan guarantees to Ebers so that he would not have to sell his WorldCom shares to meet margin calls as the share price plummeted during the bursting of the dot-com bubble. That's not a good sign that they're like, oh, don't worry about it. Here's some money. Honors. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> it gets worse. In December 20, uh, sorry, in December 2000, I'm just going to move my thing over here. That's a bit better. Um, in December 2000, Worldcom financial analyst Kim Emier was told to allocate labor for capital projects in Worldcom's network systems division as an expense rather than book it in as a capital project. But uh, by Emmy's estimate, the order would have affected at least $35 million in capital spending. Believing that he was being asked to commit tax fraud, because he was, Emir um, pressed his concerns up the chain of command, notifying an assistant to Worldcon Chief Operating Officer Ron Beaumont. Within 24 hours, it was decided not to implement the directive, However, however, Emir was uh, reprimanded by his immediate superiors and subsequently laid off in March 2001. He told you to cook the books. Why can't you just fucking follow orders, you scumbag? Oh, my God. It's, it gets much worse. And mm. because he had a trail of paper. So uh, he was from the MCI half of the 1997 WorldCom MCI merger. Later told um, the Fort Worth Weekly in May 2002 that he had expressed concerns about MCI spending habits for years. He believed that things had been reined in somewhat after WorldCom took over, but he was still unnerved by vendors billing WorldCom for exorbitant amounts that they probably shouldn't have been because the work wasn't happening. Um, so they were pulling like some 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 U.S. military type stuff. Yeah. Like we'll we'll ah. give you this at a massive rate if you like buy a shitload of it and you can have a seat on the board. It's all gotcha behind the scenes <laughs> stuff. Uh, the Fort Worth Weekly article was eventually read by Glenn Smith, an internal audit manager at WorldCom headquarters in Clinton, Mississippi. After examining it, he suggested to his boss Cynthia Cooper that she should start that year's scheduled capital expenditure audit a few months early. Cooper agreed, and the audit began. Smart, catch them off guard. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. During a meeting with auditors, the corporate finance director, Sanjeev Sethi, uh, explained that uh, differing amounts in two capital spending expenses... Sorry. <laughs> the differing amounts in two capital spending expenditures were related to prepaid... Sorry, this is going to be an important term. Prepaid capacity, something Cooper had never heard of in her entire career, ever. This is a made-up word. I was going to say, right. it sounds like words that should mean something. It's prepaid. Yeah. They sound capacity. smart, don't they? Prepaid capacity. How can, how can you have prepaid capacity? Anyway, um, when pressed for an explanation of what the fuck prepaid capacity means, Sethi claimed that he didn't know what the term meant, despite his division approving capital spending requests. He referred the auditors to corporate controller David Myers. Well, look, he wrote me into this. Well, he wrote me into this. Well, he wrote me into this. Just like, go and talk to him. He'll tell you. <sighs> ah, just, 
I, this all feels so familiar, though. Yes, it's starting to smell bad, <laughs> and it just keeps getting worse because at this point, Cooper could just go to the uh, the FCC and say, "Look, we've got something, um, something's going wrong here." The SEC, sorry, or whatever it is, and say, "Look, we've got something going wrong here. I need your help." But she decided to go in deeper, and she just kept going. Um, so Cooper asked Glenn Smith for an auditor with technical skills in order to locate the entries in the accounting system. Smith returned with Eugene Morse, awesome name for a, for a character, that, to be honest, an accountant who had been working at WorldCom since 1997 and who had helped with some reports on the wireless allowance audit. Morse subsequently joined Cooper and other auditors in trying to figure out just what the fuck prepaid capacity was. Um, you prepay for stuff that you have capacity to pay for. I guess so. Did this guy invent NFTs? <laughs> yeah, he prepaid so. for them with his capacity. He did. They they charged it to the company on prepaid capacity at an exorbitant rate. Um, <laughs> so they essentially hired this guy as a bullshit translator because they're like, we need someone to help us back back this up here because we smell a rat and we've already discovered a made up thing that doesn't make any sense and no one seems to know what it is. So. Let's look further. Since SETI did not provide enough information, Cooper went to the head of property at WorldCom, Mark Abide, who didn't abide at all. Um, abide <laughs> claimed that he was not familiar with prepaid capacity, even though he made multiple entries on it in the computerized accounting system. I don't know what it is. I just put numbers in there. I was just trying to look busy. I don't work. want them to fire me. <laughs> I just did what he said. Yeah, he told me to do this. The the guy over there, like he, but he doesn't know what it is either. Yeah, but I thought I, he probably did. Just did what so, he trained me. I don't. He was he I trained me. I I just assumed it was right. Uh, with no new information, she asked Abide to provide. I mean, it's sorry. That's that's turning into an early eighties rap right there. <laughs> I bet, I bet, I bet, I bet. Abide to provide accounts he had booked the relevant entries to. He named the accounts of furniture, fixtures, and other transmission equipment and communications equipment. So just like every little tiny fucking account they can find they're auditing, they're, they're adding money to. With starting points in hand, Cooper told her techie, Morse, to pursue the accounting system and look in, uh, for any relevance uh, references to prepaid capacity. He eventually was able to locate one and took this information to Cooper. Since, since this only represented one side of the entry, she asked him to trace it through the system. Morse uh, took all he could find to Cooper, and able to effectively put the entries in any sensible order, Cooper and her team tried to decipher them using uh, basic T accounts. No idea what that is, but they're doing some proper fucking accountancy Sherlock Holmes work here. Um, however, the amounts were bouncing between accounts in an unusual manner. Uh, resulting in a large round amount moving from WorldCom's income statement to its balance sheets. Not totally satisfied with the results, Cooper asked Morse to try and find another prepaid capacity entry that moved around in a similar fashion. That looks fishy. Let's find more. While continuing to search for more entries, Cooper began to get emails from David Myers questioning why she was looking into capital expenditures. Uh, because it's my fucking job? And you're all suspicious. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm doing my job because you're being really suspicious. And actually, you contacting me is making me even more suspicious. So. Right. Um, he told her that she was wasting her time and tying up employees like Seti 
who uh, are needed for other projects. We need him to lie about other stuff. Okay, yes. we need him back. Please, yeah. he's got to put in these ca- uh, prepaid capacities over here, and you're yeah, we, stopping him. Then the T45s, we need him to put those in the right filing. Like, oh wow, it's getting out of hand now. Um, des- despite this pushback, she told him that the employees he needed could report back to him when they finished her other projects. Like, no, I'm keeping them. Fuck you. <laughs> um, the next day, Cooper received another email from Myers, more direct and formal than the first one. It claimed the capital expenditure audit was a waste of time. This intrigued Cooper, so she decided not to reply and continue her investigation, which is fucking hilarious. Like, no, I didn't get it. We got lost in my spam. Yeah, I thought it was a coupon for (laughs) Dairy Queen or something. You know, I just didn't bother reading it. Uh, Meanwhile, Morse began to search for other entries but pulled so much data that he frequently clogged up the accounting servers, fearing that Sullivan and Myers would eventually be uh, alerted to the increased server activity, Cooper decided that she and her team would begin working at night to avoid detection. Okay. Just like fucking Watergate. She's it's so she's crazy. Ninja so, searching. Yeah. It's it's like they're, they're, now they know something weird is going on. And to avoid being like, having their kneecaps broken when they leave work. They're now working at night to avoid suspicion. This is so dodgy. Finally, on June 10th, they found more entries about prepaid capacity, large amounts that had been transferred from the income statement to the balance sheet from the third quarter of 2001 to the first quarter of 2002. Soon afterward, Chief Financial Officer Scott Sullivan, Cooper's immediate supervisor, called Cooper in for a meeting about audit projects and asked the internal audit team to walk him through recently completed audits. When Smith's turn came, Cooper asked about the prepaid capacity entries. Sullivan claimed that it referred to costs related to sonnet rings. That's all capital letters, S-O-N-E-T, rings, and lines that were either not being used at all or being used uh, or were seeing low usage. He claimed those costs were being capitalized because the costs associated with line leases were fixed even as revenue dropped. So if you talk long enough and use big fucking words, maybe they'll get bored and leave, is what we're seeing happening here. That's what's going on. Did they have a Pink Panther theme emanating uh, from them? I mean, just like, it is starting to sound like they're so dodgy that everything they say, because we know what's happening at this point. This is a dance that's happening. We've got a liar on one side, and we've got someone who's desperately trying to find the truth on the other. They know what's happening. They know that one the, the liar knows that they, the other person knows they're lying, and this person knows that they're being lied to. So they're just doing this dance backwards and forwards until there's literally nothing that they can dispute. So they're just hoping, the liar is hoping that, hoping that the investigator will fuck up and go away. But that's not going to happen with with this cooper lady she's amazing comedically sneaky it is um that night of course because they're working at night cooper and smith called max bobbitt a worldcom board member and the chairman of the audit committee to discuss their concerns bobbitt was concerned enough to tell cooper to discuss the matter with farrell malone of kpmg worldcom's exterior auditor kpmg uh, that's not a local radio station, by the way. It's... I, you said Farrell Malone and KPMG, and all of a sudden, I just thought, I just, 
thought, thought that Post Malone yeah. went feral somewhere. I know, yeah. In the middle of this story. I, yeah. Oh, I got to stop my mind from wandering. <laughs> but, but, but like when I heard KPMG, I was like, KPMG, the home of classic rock. <laughs> <laughs> like I've been listening to too much radio in my life. Um, the KPMG had inherited the WorldCom account when it bought Arthur Anderson's Jackson practice in the wake of Anderson's indictment for its role in the accounting scandal at Enron. So, oh boy. yeah, you're getting their accounts and another potential scandal is on their old books. Man, you are you have bought the wrong set of assets here um yeah, yeah. really bad purchasing i know i mean at this point the the executives uh like Wilcon could have just said oh it's the the ghosts from enron they fucking possessed us and we started doing dodgy deals because it's it's just as plausible as massive fraud slash incompetence at this point um so by this time the internal audit team had found 28 prepaid capacity entries dating back to the second quarter of 2001. By their calculations, if not for those entries, WorldCom's $130 million profit in the first quarter of 2002 would have become $395 million loss. Hmm. So that's a difference of nearly half a billion dollars. That's... As Toastazoid has just put here, how the hell do you manage to mess up being corrupt? Like, it's the easiest fucking thing in the world if you do it right. Right? That's why loads of people do it. CEO at the top. I know. Let's just keep on buying companies. That seems to have worked for the first 10 years. Jesus. Um, So, yeah. I'm starting to wonder now if prepaid capacity had anything to do with their capacity to handle prepaid cell service. I mean, that, that, that would have been a more plausible explanation. I'm a better gave. CEO than him. I covered <laughs> my own ass already. Yeah, and he's like, he, at this point in the investigation, he's not really been caught up in this. He's just oh, at the okay. top going, just say this, just fucking say this to everyone below him who's lying through their teeth. Um, so, um, so despite this, Bobbitt thought it was premature to discuss the matter with the audit committee at this point. He did, however, discuss the matter with Sullivan and assured Cooper that he would have uh, support for those entries by the following Monday. So they've given this this like guy like the weekend to like, I don't know, look through the back of his fucking car and his gym bag and stuff and find the receipts. I don't like okay. Yeah. We'll see you Monday morning. You better have a fucking excuse. Give yeah. you time to run. <laughs> they really did. Didn't they? <laughs> like, you've got the weekend. Get your shit together and maybe get a new passport um cooper decided not to wait to discuss the matter with sullivan she decided to ask the accountants who made those entries to provide support for them herself so she's gone above her boss's head at this point which i'm kind of on board with uh she first asked kenny avery who had been anderson's lead partner on the worldcom account before kpmg took over if he knew about prepaid capacity avery had never heard of the term and knew nothing in generally accepted accounting principles, GARP, which is the thing, that allowed for capitalizing line costs. So basically they've made this shit up, is what he's saying, and he doesn't know anything about it. Anderson, it turned out, had never tested WorldCom's capital expenditures for it. So it just kind of, they just carried on accepting that it was a normal thing. So there's your smoking gun. 
Cooper and Smith then questioned Betty Vinson, the accounting director who made these entries. To their surprise, Vinson admitted that she made the entries without knowing what the fuck they were doing, what what these things meant, or even seeing any support for them at all. She just did what she was told. I swear, that's like the corporate way of life, man. People I know. Like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I just yeah. do what I was trained to do. I don't Listen, know what it really is. I have a is. mortgage to pay. I'm not going to question these people. I have bills to pay. Food is really expensive now. I can't afford to say no to these people because there's no jobs out there. It's the yuppie Nuremberg excuse, essentially. Well, but so. legitimately, like in my position in my day job, I don't necessarily even know exactly <laughs> what I do does. Yeah, you just do per it. Se. I just, yeah, you just assume that you're in the right because why would anyone do, do something? Yeah, <laughs> you just if you're in a job and like about I mean this is different. Like she's a trained accountant and you're supposed to look for evidence for stuff, and she's like, "Why aren't I getting evidence for this?" And they're like, "Just shut the fuck up and do it, will you?" And she's like, "Okay, you pay me the big bucks, all right." <laughs> um, she done so at the direction of Myers and General Accounting Director. Buford Yates, that's another cracking like fictional name right there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. When Cooper and Smith spoke to Yates, he admitted that he did not know what prepaid capacity was. Nobody knows what this is, and they're just throwing money into it. It's awesome. <laughs> it's amazing. I think it's awesome that everybody just accepted that it was okay. Yeah, yeah. They're like, well, this is a word that exists, and we're we're allowed to throw money at it, so I guess it's fine. But like, it, it's literally just they could have called it MacGuffin. They could have called it the MacGuffin account and just like have people throw money at them. Like, isn't it suspicious that it's called MacGuffin? Like, isn't that a device in films that's supposed to drive the plot along? Don't worry about it. Just chuck another $30 million in there. It's fine. <laughs> Finally, the internal auditor spoke with Myers. He admitted that there was no support for the entries. In fact, they had been booked based on what we thought the margin should be, which just so you're aware, outside of the bullshit world of big business is what we call gambling is what yeah. they were doing <laughs> we go. thought this would happen and we put all our money on it because we're in business and that's what you do as a business no that's a gambling addiction you have a gambling addiction sir surprisingly i i was unaware of this but i swear to god this happens yeah all the time i think so this is much. normal business i thought these fuckers knew what they were doing they don't no, it's just they gambling <laughs> It's just a whole massive con, and we're all part of it, and we're all at the, the wrong end of it as well, the Tosazoid. I just looked up re prepaid capacity, and my com my computer called me a fucking doofus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, just, it's, it's exactly right. Like Nobody knows what it is, and they just get on with it, and then they're like, when they finally get to the, the whole basis of this, it's essentially that they were making bets, margin calls, really bad ones as well. Anyway, he admitted that the entries should never have been made, but it was difficult to stop once they started. Again, that's a gambling addiction. You know, I got yes. into it, and like I was already in the hole, so I thought I might as well carry on. You know, the food <laughs> hadn't quite come out because it wasn't midnight yet, so I thought I'd hang around a bit longer. The free alcohol hadn't kicked in yet. Yeah, so. the, the, the drink person hadn't gotten back with my complimentary so i put another bet coke. on yeah. yeah and like i i had a good feeling about this hand i really did like you know i've been losing so much i couldn't possibly lose another one i, I just doubled down so you know we couldn't stop sewers okay uh <laughs> <laughs> 
And also, it's just um, this is my favorite part. Although he was uh, he was uncomfortable with the entries. Oh, I'm glad that you were uncomfortable with these massive, world crippling financial decisions. He never thought he would ever have to explain them to the regulators. I mean, why? why? <laughs> you think you just buy him a steak dinner and this would all fucking go away or something? This isn't the Golden Globes where you take him out uh, for a dinner and everything's fine. You're getting the award. This yeah. isn't like that. It's so I never thought funny. I'd have to explain anything I ever did. I didn't think they'd Why? do their jobs. Why are you doing your job? Just listen. It's prepaid capacity. Accept it. It's a word that exists now. Um, the <laughs> following day, Farrell met with Sullivan and Myers and concluded that their rationale for the entries made sense from a business perspective, but not an accounting perspective. You know, the one that actually fucking counts. How does so... it make sense from a business perspective, though? Because they're business is stupid. <laughs> Because uh, they can, they're they're in business, so therefore they're businessmen. So therefore it makes sense, you know. Yeah, you can okay. excuse it because <laughs> big words, lots gotcha. of big words in front of a committee to not go oh. to jail. Keep saying the big words, businessman. Yeah. You're fine. Government will prepaid capacity. Out. Prepaid capacity. Oh, he's fine. Let's give him a hundred billion dollars. Um, in <laughs> so, uh, Bobbitt finally caught called an audit committee meeting for June 20th. By this time, Cooper's team, this crack team, and I swear you should make a film about this, even though like it's finance and it's not very glamorous. Like it's They are like operating like fucking spies at this point. Cooper's team had discovered over $3 billion in questionable transfers from line cost expense accounts to assets from 2001 to 2002 in one year. This company had like fucked around with $3 billion that just wasn't there. No wonder so, my phone service sucked. <laughs> no, no wonder no one could get service at the turn of the millennium. These fuckers were ruining money. They were um, spending the, it elsewhere. I know. They're just like spending it on bets that aren't going to come off. They're gambling with our phone service. My God. Um, at the meeting, Farrell Star stated that there was nothing in GARP that would allow those entries. Sullivan claimed that WorldCom had invested in expanding the telecom network from 1999 onwards. But the anticipated expansion in customer usage never occurred. Again, more gambling. So ah. we will expand our capacity and then we'll have a giant fucking room for all of these people to fit in. There'll be food there. There'll be places for them to sit. There'll be an Xbox over in the corner. We'll maybe have a couple of like, you know, jacuzzis and stuff. They'll have a great time. Then one person shows up. You're fucked. That's. They did that with cities in China. They did. That's why China now has a massive housing crisis, because there's just empty buildings everywhere. Um, he argued that the entries were justified on the basis of the matching principle, which allowed costs to be booked as an expense, so they align with any future benefit accrued for an asset. That's, of course, if things actually happen the way they're supposed to, which they didn't, because, you know the market crashed in 2000 and telecoms companies were all completely fucked. He also contended that since um, capital assets were worth less than what the books said they should be, he, re he reiterated his proposal for a restructuring charge or an impairment charge, as he called it, for the second quarter of 2002. He claimed that Myers could, get, could provide support for the entries and the committee gave him until Monday to get the support. What is it? About giving him in the weekend to, to like get his shit together. They're, they uh, used to be bookies. I swear to All God, right, like you yeah, got you till get, Monday. The yeah, juice is running. Money. Yeah. 
<laughs> the Vic is going up. Just get my fucking money. <laughs> All told, the internal audit unit had discovered a total of 49 at this point prepaid capacity entries detailing 3.8 billion in transfers spread out across all of 2001 and the first quarter of 2002 nearly four billion dollars in a year that was just nothing just fictional money um several of them were keyed in an explicit uh, keyed in on explicit directions from sullivan and myers under the line ss entry they fucking Nazis now. What the hell is that for? Um, stupid shit. Stupid shit money. That's that's <laughs> the perfect. While some of the suspicious entries were made by directors and managers, others were made by lower level accountants who didn't understand the seriousness of what they were doing because no one knows what prepaid capacity fucking means. They just it's a thing. We do it. We're keeping our jobs. We're getting paid. Let's just shut up and pay the mortgage. That's that's it's, all. It's that what is. happens when you compartmentalize jobs so much that yeah. it's like. You are responsible for this tiny little minuscule task yeah. and just do this. Don't yeah. ask questions. <laughs> they're not Nazis, they're boats. That's 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 a good that's boats. a good one. I, I don't know if I get that reference, Toasty. You're gonna have to put that in the yeah. I'm slow. <laughs> uh it was also put how people like the Wolf of Wall Street just because it's a bunch of financial stuff doesn't mean it's not interesting. I mean, yeah, the Wolf of Wall Street, I think. It was the Scorsese effect and the drugs and all of that crazy shit and the weird acting and stuff. Whereas if you watch like Margin Call or um, the Adam McKay film about um, like kind of the financial crisis and housing and stuff. Sorry, what's that? Too big to fail. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, that's that's a lot different. Like I remember watching that with my wife and like having to explain some of the terms to her. And then I was explaining it going, oh, wait, I don't think that's right. So even I don't understand the shit that I'm trying to explain to someone. So, Dude, most yeah. of the stuff you're saying right now, I'm just kind of like... <laughs> I mean, basically, all you have to know is fancy business words, actually just gambling, basically, Makes is what's sense. happening. Yeah, we're taking money that we don't have, and we're hoping that it'll materialize, but if it doesn't, we're fucked. And so, we'll like, how I run my household it. budget. Basically, yeah, so... Um, you, you gamble that you will have X number of money, and when it doesn't happen, you're like, ah, oh, we're fucked. Uh, we can't report the losses. Let's just make it up and make ourselves look successful, which is exactly what happened, I think. Um, while some of the suspicious entry, oh yeah, we've talked about that. While meeting with another account director, accounting director Troy Normand, another great fictional name, um, they learned about more potentially illicit accounting. According to Normand, management had drawn the company's cost reserves in portions of 2000 and 2001 to artificially reduce expenses. At the same time, the audit committee asked KPMG to conduct its own review. KPMG discovered that Sullivan had moved system costs across a number of property accounts, allowing them to be booked as capital expenditures. So again, he's like hiding the losses and stuff. It's Shell game in it. Just spread it out. The expenses were spread out, um, so they weren't initially obvious. When KPMG asked Anderson's former WorldCom engagement team about the entries, the Anderson accountants said they would never have approved of the entries had they known about them. So where the fuck were you? It's your job. You're the accounting firm. I was on holiday that week. Sorry. Yeah, I was just like, I was thinking about Enron and how badly we fucked that up, and I just wasn't <laughs> paying attention to this. Uh, Sullivan was asked to present a written explanation for his actions by Monday. Um, fuck me. Like, 
at this point, are they just saying to them, look, either show up with the answer or fuck off to Venezuela, because either way, we're getting an answer on Monday. They keep giving them these weekends to get yeah. that shit in order, and it never works out. Yeah, have so. they ever come in on a Monday and be like, all right, I got the receipts. <laughs> I got the receipts. Everything's fine. Look, this solves everything. Everything's Sir, fine. this no. is a napkin. They always just come in with better <laughs> excuses on Monday. Stop giving them time to lie. Um, an old committee <laughs> meeting that Monday, Sullivan presented a white paper explaining his reasoning. The audit committee and KPMG were not persuaded. Of course they weren't. It's more lies. They, they concluded that the amounts were transferred with the sole purpose of meeting Wall Street targets exactly. The only acceptable remedy was to restate the corporate earnings for all of 2001 and for the first quarter of 2002. Exactly. Just fucking tell the truth. Honest to God. Anderson withdrew its audit opinion for 2001 and the board demanded Sullivan and Myers resignation. Now the shit is about to finally hit the fucking fan. Monday's um, come. Yeah, this is Monday's here. One of the three Mondays <laughs> is finally fucking here. Um, by April, oh, sorry, Toast Side has put um, you can't explain yourself with a Garfield comic. Yes, that's very true. Yes, that's that would be a good way. I've come in. Look, I, I opened the funnies over the weekend, and this explains my position perfectly. If you'll notice what Dilbert's doing in this panel, um, <laughs> April 2002, Bernie Ebers had lost substantial support on the board due to. I mean, all of this bullshit, but an additional number of uh, directors believe that Ebers had not charted a way forward after the Sprint merger collapse. That $115 billion merger we mentioned earlier, that fell apart and he was like, well, I'm out of ideas. I'm just going to sit here and collect money now. So, yeah, and take out loans that because, you know, you don't want to lose my stock. It'll make us look bad. Give me money for my stock. On <laughs> um, April 26th. Worldcom's board voted unanimously to demand that Ebers resign while he formally did, uh, which he formally did, sorry, on April 30th, 2002. As part of his departure, his loans were consolidated into one single promissory note, which he owed them $408.2 million. This man now owed this company. It's less than a billion. It's less than a billion. You owe us half a billion dollars. But it's okay because you've got till Monday to, to give us that money. <laughs> <laughs> the fucking Mondays. <laughs> if you'll notice from this Dilbert panel, he's uh, spread, he spread anti-Semitic propaganda. Yeah, it was Dilbert, not Kanye. Um, on June 25th, after the uh, amount of illicit entries was confirmed, the board also accepted Myers' resignation and fired Sullivan when he refused to resign with the fucking balls on that guy. Wow. <laughs> you you yeah. were given the weekend and you gave us a terrible answer and now you're refusing to resign. Yes, you're kind of definitely fired. You can't um, fire me. Can't fire me. I'm going to stay. Well, actually, no, it's smart because he's getting fired with a package, right? You can't just fire someone and not give them oh, a little yeah. bit at this level, like they're getting an exit package. So I guess okay. if you get fired, it's more, right? Uh -huh. Um on the same day, WorldCom executives briefed the SEC, so they're getting this is getting really scary now, revealing that it would have to restate its earnings for the previous five quarters. Oh, Later boy. that day, WorldCom publicly admitted that it had overstated its income by over $3.8 billion over the five quarters. Jeez. That's shit. That's yeah, a lot of money. We overestimated a little. We had this thing called prepaid capacity. No one knew what it meant. And we just sort of did things, and then $4 billion disappeared. So, sorry, 
Um, the disclosure came at a particularly bad time for WorldCom. Even before the scandal broke, its its credit had been reduced to junk, and its stock had lost over ninety four percent of its value. Ouch! A bit like Amazon around this time. Actually, you could have got Amazon stock for like, I'll trade you for this loo roll. I'll trade you for this toilet paper. You can have a share in Amazon. Uh, this is, yeah, that's still when they were doing books. Right? Yeah, they were they were just a book supplier at this point. You could get an Amazon share for like a dollar at this point and a bunch of people were like ah fuck it i'll buy 50 dollars worth now they're millionaires I've been so smart. yeah that, if only if only we had a time machine eh mm-hmm. um so um it had been facing a separate sec investigation into its accounting that had been started earlier in the year and was laboring under 30 billion dollars of debt so on top of the 3.8 billion they have 30 billion dollars of debt that they've racked up by buying like 60 fucking other companies and then just not being able to pay off the debt from that, which is because they keep buying stuff thinking it'll work out, but then it doesn't work out. And then they just keep betting and betting and betting and betting. See, this is, I don't understand how business and, and executive stuff works because normally, because you would say that mergers and acquisitions is part of a CEO's job, right? Buying right. businesses and yes. managing debt. and It's how you make your name as a CEO. Right. So if you suck at it, <laughs> you would think that you wouldn't get a job. You wouldn't keep your job your for job. 10, 15 years. Right. <laughs> but, but he like, has. If I sucked at my job as bad as all of these people seem to, yep. I wouldn't have one. But they know. all get better ones. It's crazy. Except for the Enron people. <laughs> except for the Enron people who, like, God knows what happened to them, but they ain't, hand- they ain't handling any serious amounts of money again. And also this guy kind of doesn't really go on to any other jobs. Well, and Martin Shkreli. That and Martin Shkreli, yeah. He's he's like a streamer now. He's out streaming, probably as we speak. I don't know if he's been banned yet, but I wouldn't mind betting that he has at some point. Anyway, back to Bernie over here. Oh, my God, I just realized he's Bernie and he's fronting a fraud. Ah! Oh, my God. Ah, Bernie Evers. It couldn't be any more perfect. Um. So um, $30 billion in debt. Amid rumors of bankruptcy, Wilcom said it would lay off 17,000 employees, which would just leave like the doorman and the guy that arranges the the board meetings on Monday. Those are the only two people that still have a job. You know? Man, that's a lot of people. Um, Go on, what were you going to say? I'm still, yeah. 17,000 people. That's a lot of lives, man. Yeah, in like a day. Gone. That's a, that's a lot of lives because you suck at your job. A stadium worth of people. Yeah. Cool. Like an entire baseball game. Yankees. Mid-season. Still uh, in... Well, maybe not. Se- se- 17 or 70? 17. Uh, see, yeah. 70, I think, is more like Yankee Stadium. Uh, Yankee Stadium is quite big, isn't 30. it? 30. Yeah, let's go with the Mariners or something like that. Uh, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> 17,000 people in, in one go just laid off. The The company filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy um, on Sunday, the 21st of July, 2002. And uh gets even more interesting because the federal government had already begun an informal inquiry earlier in June when uh, Vincent, the lady who was like, I made the payments, but I can't remember why I did them. I was just told to, and I did. Yates and Normandy secretly met with SEC and Justice Department officials. They're turning state's witness. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not good. Um, yeah. The SEC, 
<laughs> you know, please don't send me to jail. I'll tell you everything. Prepaid, you know, uh, no, basically they've gave they've given everything. Um, the SEC filed civil fraud charges against WorldCon and on June 26, speculating that WorldCon had engaged in a concerted effort to manipulate its earnings in order to meet Wall Street targets and support its stock price, which was in the fucking toilet. Additionally, it claimed that the scheme had been directed and approved by senior management, hinting that executives in higher positions than Sullivan and Myers had known about the scheme. That's our man Bernie here. Oops. Around about the time that Ebers defaulted on his promissory note and WorldCom foreclosed on all of his personal assets, Attorney General of Oklahoma Drew Edmondson filed a 15-count indictment against Ebers. The indictment charged that he violated security laws by defrauding investors on multiple occasions between January 2001 and March 2002. On November 20, 2003, the charges by Oklahoma were dropped with the right to refile retained to defer to federal charges. They're waiting for the government oh. to get him. That's not good. That's uh -oh. a sign that you're fucked. Really? <laughs> um, that's the federal government going, look, just don't bother with this. We got it. He's going to prison. Yeah, um, you can chew on him when we're done. Yeah, we take priority here. We're after more uh, than just Oklahoma. On March the 2nd, 2004, fed federal authorities indicted Ebers with security fraud and conspiracy charges. On May 25th, 2004, federal prosecutors increased the list of charges to nine felony uh, felonies, one count of uh, one count each of conspiracy and securities fraud and seven counts of filing false statements with the securities regulators. On March 15th, 2005, Ebers was found guilty of all charges. And on March 30th of 2005, an agreement to extend the statute of limitations on the charges from Oklahoma was signed, allowing Oklahoma prosecutors time to see the results of the federal sentencing. <laughs> let's get a, let's go to a bar, you know, let's order in some wings, let's get a picture in, and we'll just watch what happens on the TV, and then we can refile, you know. Um, <laughs> on the 13th of July, 2005, federal judge Barbara S. Jones of the United States District Court of the Southern District of New York sentenced Ebers to 25 years in federal prison. Damn. Yeah. Damn. You know what's funny about that? When you get indicted by the feds, it's usually because you did something fucking illegal and you go to yeah. jail about it. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> so kind of like exactly what happened in this situation. I mean, also 25 years. Ooh. That's a life sentence, essentially. That's, that's, that's actually... A lot for somebody that is, is like an elite type person that yeah. has been wealthy. But I mean, he jacked their money and then he wasn't wealthy anymore. So you get to go to prison in that case, I guess. Yeah, exactly. He's they've taken all his money at this point. So he is no longer a rich white guy. So they can take they can do whatever the fuck they need to with him. Because uh, there's the, I mean, this is I think this is around the time when the world had kind of lost faith in a lot of people following the Enron shit. So they're yeah. like, we have to come down hard on this guy. Plus, we've had like five people turn state wit state's witness on this guy. So we have to give him a, a make an example out of him, basically. Does it say which prison they sent him to? Are you oh, yes, it okay. does. And we'll get to that. He goes to club fed all okay. the way, baby. Was um, he with Tommy Chong? I think so. Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> it may even be lighter. <laughs> um, Ebers was allowed to remain free 
for another year while his appeal was also considered. His conviction was upheld in the U.S. Courts of Appeals and the Second Circuit in July 2006. He was out for a long time. Uh, on September a lot of Mondays. 6th, oh, that's a lot of Mondays to get his shit together. On September the 6th, 2006, um, the presiding judge ordered him to report to jail on September 26th to start serving his 25-year sentence. Ebers reported to Oakdale Federal Correctional Institute in Oakdale, Louisiana, on September 26, 2006, driving himself to the prison in his Mercedes-Benz. Oh, goodness. How does Why he didn't... still have one of those? I know. Why didn't Worldcom take that? I'd have given him a couple of hundred quid for a Mercedes-Benz. I could have yeah. helped you out, guys. I had a little mm. bit of scratch back then. I think there has to be a limitation on... Yeah, like, they have to be able you, to get around. You get a Hyundai. Yeah, though. like you make them trade it for a fucking Mini Cooper or some shit. You know, make it like a two seater or something. Goodness, uh, <laughs> I need I need a car to get around. Well, you don't need that car to get around with, mate. We we can give you a bike. You can come on. It's only places. a CLK. <laughs> I need an automatic, and it needs to be a Merc. Um, so. <laughs> Ebers served in the low-security portion of the complex, which typically houses non-violent offenders. Uh, oh, my God. It was built like a school dormitory. The way they describe that. I'm like it's fucking Harry Potter. I'm trying to find pictures. You're trying to find pictures of this correctional facility. Oakdale. Oak, Oak, sorry, yeah, let me re read that again. So, 25 years. Oakdale... Federal Correctional Institution in Oakdale, California. Imagine if he was on a skateboard. I mean, it's a school uh, dorm, man. He can uh, just. I just love that they describe it as a school dormitory, like it's fucking Harry Potter, only with like less racial stereotypes. And uh, it goes in, and instead of there being like a fucking sorting hat, there's just a gigantic prison guard that just screams out "corporate fraud" or something like that, and sends him off to the right room. Have you found a picture of the place? No, none that look cushy. I know. I mean, it's, 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 I guess in America, no prisons really that cushy, except the one that Barbara, Barbara, what's her name, went to? Stewart? Is it Barbara uh, Stewart? What's her name? Martha Stewart. Uh, Martha, Martha Stewart. Stewart. Yeah. Yeah. She went to a pretty cushy prison. Martha Stewart, Tommy Chong. Tommy Chong said that they had, um, some like camp like, ooh, sort of roasting conditions. Like, well, like um, rehab type. Camp. Oh, okay. Shit. When you see when you said camp, I was like singing Kumbaya oh, yeah. around the fire and telling scary stories. Like, is that what they're doing? That's that that's would be legit. That I'd would be that. okay. That would be the kind of prison time I could do. Yeah, or or like <laughs> Epstein's first prison sentence, where he's like allowed out to work during the day and and just con more people. Like that wasn't yeah. prison. That was just him fucking off on this day job. You know yeah. why was that happening? Um, he was granted. Uh, it gets a little bit more sad here. Actually, he was granted early release after serving twelve years in December two thousand and nineteen due to health problems. Um, mm. However, the more interesting stuff about his assets now. On October the eleventh, two thousand and two, Worldcom investors brought a class action lawsuit against Ebers and the other defendants, alleging injuries as a result of Ebers' securities and fraud violations. Judge Denise Cote of the United States District Court for the Southern District of New York ordered the parties in the lawsuit to negotiate. The parties agreed that Eber and his co-defendants would distribute over $6.13 billion 
plus interest to over 830,000 individuals and institutions that had held stock and bonds in Worldcon at the time of its collapse. And they did it all by Monday. There goes his Mercedes. Holy crap. How did they yeah, do it? I know. <laughs> uh, sorry, how did they do it? Sorry, did you say how did they do it? How did they do it by Monday? Well, I'm joking. No, they didn't have to do it by Monday. <laughs> Evers agreed to relinquish almost all of his assets. I don't think you get a say in that, right? Oh. 6.3 billion, 6.13 They kind of take everything, right? I think. Do you have any dandruff can, we can take? I think you can keep your like wedding rings and stuff yeah, like that, maybe. Keep, yeah. <laughs> maybe keep your fillings. Yeah, maybe maybe the shed in the garden you can sleep in there. I don't know. Um, so he he was able he uh, agreed to relinquish almost all of his assets, including a home in Mississippi and his interests in a lumber company, a marina, a golf course, you own a fucking golf course, a hotel, and thousands of acres of forest real estate. After the settlement, Eber's wife was left with an estimated fifty thousand dollars in known assets. Oof, that's a come down. Um, on September the 21st, 2005, Judge Coe approved the settlement and dismissed the lawsuit against Ebers. For reference, at his peak in early 1999, Ebers was worth an estimated $1.4 billion and was listed as the 174th richest person on Forbes 400 uh, richest people in America. His personal holdings included, and this is where it gets hilarious, uh, Douglas Lake, Canada's biggest ranch, which was 500,000 acres, 2,000 square kilometers in British Columbia. That's like half of fucking... I know, that's like half of like Canada, I swear to God. General partner slash president. Um, he acquired that in 1998 for about $65 million and sold it on uh, May 30th, 2003 by MCI to Arsenal Football Club owner Stan Kroenke, who's an interesting person in his own right as well. Is that somebody? Um, I, I don't know anything about that guy. Is it somebody you might cover? Uh, might be. Yeah. Totozoid, ah. that's just north of me. Um, yeah. So that's that's kind of quite a lot of land to give up. But that's just the start of it. He also gave up the Angelina Plantation, 21,000 acres, 85 square kilometers farm, in Monterey, Louisiana, co-owner, uh, co-owned with his brother, John Ebers, acquired in 1998. This motherfucker literally owned a plantation. So, <sighs> I know it's not one of those plantations, but don't buy a plantation. That's bad. Yeah, I, well, <laughs> I, I don't call it one. No, don't call the plantation. <laughs> Rename the fucking place. You can do that. Um, Joshua Holdings, which combined with Joshua Lum, uh, Timberlands, Joshua Timberlands. That's yeah. That's like, Justin Timberlake's cousin. Um, <laughs> I thought it was jo the boot place. I, uh, well, yeah, there it is. That's that's where it is. Uh, and Joshua Timber totals five hundred and forty thousand acres. This guy owns a country and two hundred sorry two thousand two hundred square kilometers of timberlands in Mississippi, Tennessee, Louisiana, and Alabama. Uh, he was the majority owner of that and acquired the properties. Um, in 1999, for 600 million dollars, this guy was rich. Yeah, shit. Um, he also mm -hmm. go he on. What were you gonna say? Wood. He lost. Yeah, all he, his lo wood. he lost all his wood. <laughs> he won't need it in prison. Someone yeah. else will have wood for him in prison. Uh, oh. Pine Ridge Farm. Oh, sorry. Pine Ridge Farm, livestock and crop farm in Mississippi. 
Um, he owned that, and uh, that was in 1997 he bought that. Columbus Lumber, a high-tech lumber mill in Brookhaven, Mississippi, majority owner since at least 1996. What does a high-tech lumber mill look like? Is that robot labor? What? Like Maybe. Jetson shit. I mean... I- I don't know. I like. Maybe I don't know so. how high tech can lumber be. I mean, surely you've got to have like people there, right? Maybe a lot of it's automated. Maybe there's maybe. like, maybe everything. Maybe white walls. They like pump in nice smells every now and then. I don't know. That's that's a weird one. High tech lumber mill. Is that where um, they make article board? Is that, that might be it. Lumber? Yeah, that'll that'll be it. High tech. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yachts, uh, BCT Holdings, owner of Intermarine, a yacht building and repair company in Georgia. He was the primary owner of that, and he bought that in 1998 for about $14 million, dropping the ocean after he owns half of Canada. Hotels. He owned nine hotels in Mississippi and Tennessee, co-owner or owner of those, acquired over many years. He owned a trucking company called KLLM, a trucking firm in Mississippi. Uh, which was acquired with a partner in 2000 for about $30 million, was at one point led by K. William Croth, who was an executive at WorldCom. Um, he also owned, uh, was a part owner in an indoor sport slash the Jacksonville Bandits, a minor league hockey team. He's a 50% owner of that, and he uh, sold his stake in 2003. Uh, that's a lot of shit. How do you have time yeah. to own all this shit? And, uh, well, he, he doesn't seem to be doing a lot other than buying other companies, so he might as well just turn his thing to buying lumber yards and high-tech lumber yards and half of Canada. Dude, Wait. he's super into lumber. <laughs> he really is. Like, lumber, and it's a weird portfolio. Lumber, yachts, plantations, ranches, and then, like, what was that? Fucking trucking company? Hotels? This guy owns a lot of stuff. Trying to, trying to think of jokes here but yeah he's into wooden hotels wooden hotels and a lot of wooden hotels and yachts so he uses the the money to build himself a giant yacht i I don't know robot chainsaws very good dude maybe he's buying up all the woods to build an ark that's what it is he was a devout christian yeah he was a devout christian he's trying to build another ark and all of the land he's using to raise cattle on so that all of the beasts can find their way onto the ark afterwards all the elk yeah. from Canada. I figured it out. I just made it up, but I just figured it out. There you go. That's We found out, and then he lost it all because he was corrupt. Um, Ebers died at his home. His home? How did he still have a fucking home? Someone's home. Um, no, someone's home. In Brookhaven, Mississippi, on February the 2nd, 2020, at the age of 78, just over a month after being released from prison due to health reasons, his lawyers claimed that he was, by the time of his death, Legally blind and suffering from dementia, anemia, and significant weight loss. Which, I mean, that sounds like he'd he'd basically been dying, and they let him out for the last that few days. Sucks. Basically, that's, that's bad. Sad. When you've got all that going on and weight loss, it's like a sign that your body's shutting down. When you really. said twenty twenty, what? When twenty twenty? February second, twenty twenty. So three and a bit years ago. Old guy in prison in the twenties, twenty twenties. Yeah. Yeah, Bad you don't want to guess. To... Mm. That's yeah. that's not a good time to be really unwell in the prison system, even in club fed, especially actually in a in a Harry Potter style dormitory. You know, you definitely don't want that shit happening. Solitary confinement is probably better for you in that situation. Yeah, so a lot of people um, in open air probably not good there in the yeah, February exactly. of 2020. That would not be a good time to be in prison. <laughs> so, um, Derek, what do you make of Bernie Ebbers here? 
and behind one of the biggest so much money it's a lot of money man it's and wow and the the layoffs like yeah that hurts and i i yeah. i have a little like personal angry spot for mm. businesses that suck at life and businessmen yep. that suck at life and hide stuff and think it's cool to just meander their way through fucking everything up and thinking yeah. it's going to be okay cuz you know it's just business and also it's like lives <laughs> yeah it's just other people's lives and also i feel like a lot of the time as you pointed out businessmen kind of get away with this shit like they sometimes they don't go to prison they end up working for somewhere else they end up going to a different company whatever it might be because they're never really held to account but man this guy was they took everything from this guy except his merc yeah well i mean in the end it took his life it did so um yeah. but gosh Seventeen thousand people in a in a foul a swoop. Yep, all gone. And th- how many hundred billion dollars? So, or... um, so they the official losses through that one scheme was three point eight billion, but okay. the company also had debts of thirty billion, um, and they were told to pay people back to the tune of sixty one billion. Ooh. So that's a lot of money. Okay, it was wiped out there. You know, combined, you're over a hundred million dollars there. So, well, number one, thank you for the story because <laughs> there were so many amazing names in there: Bernie Ebers and uh, oh, man, Kumquat Summerbatch Sumber, <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> they were all great fictional yeah. names. You're like this. This doesn't sound like a real human name. That sounds like some authors made it up to fill up a spot in the book. But. Yeah, so many people, lives affected, so much money, totally mishandled, mismanaged, and stolen away from people that could have probably really used it. Um, I I think an 87 is in order. Thanks, man. That's a good score. I think it's it's also interesting from the perspective of, obviously, a lot of people were complicit, which is why a lot of them turned state's witness. But also, like as they pointed out in various points in the story, people further down the chain were doing it because they were told to do it. They didn't know what they were doing. They didn't even know if any of it made sense. But because they trusted the system, they just went along with it. So capitalism in a massive company like that works like that sometimes. Well, that's the thing about the system. It's all fucking made up. Yeah. Just do your thing. Try to be good people. (laughs) And when when you get down to it, it it reminds me a little bit of the, um, the episode of South Park where like the economy collapses and Stan's dad has bought like a margarita maker and he just wants to get a refund on this margarita maker and he keeps going to like these different companies they're like oh no we took out a share on this thing so the margarita company actually doesn't belong to us it belongs to this company and then he goes to the other company oh no no we we got that as part of a bundle deal through this company that's actually their margarita maker and then when he finally goes to who owns the margarita maker, which is like the the Federal Reserve or whatever it is. He walks in and they've got like a giant board with a bunch of like, go bankrupt, earn $30 million, do this, take a shot and stuff. They chop the head off a chicken and watch it dance around until it lands oh, on something. God. And it lands on bail out the banks. And they're like, oh, I guess we're bailing out the banks then. Um, so <laughs> it just reminds me of that. It's just one person makes up one scheme. And then puts it in such a structured way 
that it sounds like it's totally above board and nobody else is like other than the three or four people who knew about it everyone else is like well i've been told to do it therefore i'll do it and that's like that's probably the worst thing because you've made them complicit without them even knowing yeah so yep yeah terrible. you know what extra point 80 88 88 thank you it's um it's such a weird scheme and again a lot of this is he just thought he could carry on going he just thought he could carry on going buying these companies making these ridiculous bets fixing the books and everything would work out fine and and he just carry on buying swathes of land in canada and lumber mills and shit he should have so, just figured out what prepaid capacity was he should have invented a meaning for it he could have invented prepaid capacity as a theory as a thing and made money from it like you said like implemented it in the company made a big song because that's the thing when you invent something that's fine you then have to make a big song and dance about it so that you can actually earn money from it so if you invent a new thing in business you then talk about how revolutionary it's been for your company and how you've implemented it and how it's seen like x number of growth in this sector and like the bottom line has grown by 17% as a result of me implementing this strategy and stuff. If you go on LinkedIn, a lot of people's <laughs> LinkedIn's bios are just like, in 2005, I, I came on board and I did this thing. And as a result, we saw a net increase of this, this, and this. And it's fine because people are saying that they're trumpeting their successes. So all he had to do was really do that, put in the extra effort and make it work. And he would have been okay, but what he actually did was he made something up so that he could siphon money that wasn't there onto the company's books and make them look successful. But that was only going to work for so long. It eventually became a giant Ponzi scheme, essentially. Right. So he's another Bernie at that point. He's Bernie Madoff. He's, before he's Bernie literally Madoff another Bernie. He literally is, yeah. <laughs> so that's that's it. Um, we've got Bernie Ebers, the man who just couldn't stop buying and losing on everything he did in the world of business and um your fella who was what was the guy's name again uh henry goddard henry henry goddard. goddard the um psychologist slash eugenicist who just liked to fucking experiment on on kids and that um, we're also, slow yeah uh, and you know what in fact i'm gonna bump him up as well i think he's gonna be an 85 because yeah, that's that's horrible shit. You shouldn't be experimenting on people like that. That's really disgusting. Um, so yeah, we've had um, one of those episodes where it's unchecked power, I think is the big thing here, where no one checked up on these people, made sure that they were actually on the right track doing what they should be doing. And as a result, it impacted the lives of literally tens of thousands of people as a result for years to come. And yep. that's not good. Um, so... Yeah, I think um, checks and balances are a good thing and they're there for a reason. But when people seem to be too good for it, that's when you run into issues, I think, yep. ultimately. Yeah. Yep. So that's our show for this week, folks. Thank you so much for joining us. Toasterzoid, thank you for all the amazing comments as usual. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on live. If you want to go and support us, you can follow us on social media at Greatest Idiots on Twitter. You can go to History's Greatest Idiots on Instagram, and you can also go on patreon.com slash History's Greatest Idiots and join our um, Kimberly and Jesse. There we go. I remembered. Yeah, you uh, nailed it. I, for once. Uh, join them as our patrons and sling us some money so that you can get a very special gift and you can get behind-the-scenes scripts and uh, random stuff 
from the uh, behind the scenes of our lives as well, where we will share it on there as well. So yes, yeah, so I've got some, some of the stuff I capacity to pay for. Yeah, we got you've got to have that prepaid capacity and make sure you understand what it means as well. Uh, I put some stuff on the uh, the the Patreon that I actually don't put on my social media. So there's actually some pictures from my holidays that did not go online anywhere, but. <laughs> My Patreon and also my trip to the uh, the podcast um, conference in London. I put that on Patreon nice. and I didn't put it on social media. So get the behind the scenes look of our lives on there. So please go and support us and help us make this a full time gig because man, we're really enjoying doing this. Oh yeah, and I promise, I I'll log into Patreon now and I will post things too. Yeah, after after Derek kind of spent like two three weeks like prompting me like can you give me the password can we reset the password for this and i was like yeah i'll do it but because i'm an old man and i am so busy i kept forgetting and then eventually i spent like a couple of hours doing it and it works yeah and then i got wandered off and started making creepy videos instead and they're really good (laughs) if you go to derek's um youtube channel at that effing guy um sorry that effing as in e double f n um that that short you made was excellent it's really good thank you dude i appreciate it's it atmospheric and like it it fits like within the world of like what would be believable kind of horror and analog horror and stuff i totally get it i think it's great i haven't I had just, a chance to read the description yet but i just finally figured out what analog horror really was exactly and i did you it on it. accident i know <laughs> <laughs> it's it's like that sort of thing it's like kind of found footage and kind of dramatic yeah straightforward editing it's there's a lot more of that story coming too yes so go and follow that effing guy on um instagram and on youtube and also if you want to follow me my social media tags are at while the anger on twitter instagram uh youtube you can also find this podcast on youtube just search for history's greatest idiots and you'll find it there and um, yeah, I hope you guys get a chance to follow and subscribe to our podcast. We're at 870 followers on Spotify and 110 subscribers on YouTube. So you guys are awesome. Yeah. My boss was boasting the other day because he had a thousand followers on Spotify. But this is a guy who's got like um, like 45,000 followers on social media and is one of the, like the biggest names. And I'm like, oh, my God, he's like just ahead of us. We're right behind him. So, and he's like <laughs> a big time businessman. So I'm like, that's awesome. Oh God, yeah, we're right behind. Um, so yeah, thank you guys so much. Um, we will see you in a couple of weeks. We'll probably be doing a bunch of episodes. So if you watch our live streams, we'll probably be doing a bunch of them close together soon because Derek's got a bunch of big stuff happening in the lots, in, of, stuff. lots of distribution, lots of stuff. So we're going to record a bunch of live streams back to back. Obviously, they'll be out. Uh, two weeks apart as usual podcast installments but if you guys want to follow us on youtube you will get to see our live streams or on twitter so go ahead and follow us there um so until next time derek would you like to say goodbye please goodbye everybody and we will see you um soon actually take care now bye <laughs>